there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a minute before your podcast starts to talk about something very important to me. Black Lives Matter. I, Sarah Strumming, am committed to anti-racism and the companies that I oversee, the Cognitive Canine and CogDog Radio, are also committed to anti-racism. I recognize my privilege here and I recognize that I have a platform where I can use my voice and I intend to do so in such a way that combats systemic racism because it absolutely affects the field of dog training and it's time that everybody with a platform uses it for good. I'm gonna link a list of resources for ways that you can support black, indigenous, and people of color and also just some educational resources that I've found helpful in my anti-racism journey And I hope that we can all stand together to dismantle racism in dog training and therefore in the world. Cheers. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And if we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. Trish McMillan is a certified professional dog trainer and a certified dog behavior consultant. She's been involved in sheltering since the mid-90s, and I wanted to talk to her about the state of dogs in the U.S. today. We had a great conversation, we covered a lot of bases, and I truly hope you enjoy it. I know I did. All right, you guys, today I have Trish McMillan on the podcast. Trish, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk to you. So the reason that you're here is I was moved by a Facebook post of yours that started out a tale of two dogs belonging to a dog trainer. So can you give us a synopsis of that post for those who may not have seen it? Sure. This is a story that I tell a lot when people ask me nature nurture questions because they were both dogs raised by the, well, they were owned by the same person. So the The pictures are of a brown mixed breed dog and a brown and white pit bull. And the mixed breed dog, his name was Chinook, and he's a dog that I had 20 years ago. And I was a baby dog trainer then, and I thought, I'm going to raise this litter of puppies, and they are going to be super puppies. I'm going to socialize them, I'm going to train them, they're going to go to puppy classes, they're going to be brilliant. And Chinook was the most difficult of that bunch of puppies. And he ended up having some pretty significant aggression issues. He started growling at me at three weeks of age when I was doing routine puppy handling. 
and he ended up being euthanized by 18 months of age after many, many attacks on me, my boyfriend, our dog. And it was really humbling because I was so sure I could create the perfect puppy having the, having the litter and the mom from birth. So the other picture is of a pit bull, my, my dog Theodore, who I have now. He's almost eight. And he was raised by a dog fighter. He was raised by an extremely cruel man who is actually still in prison for what he did to the 100-plus dogs that were seized from him in 2013. And Theodore, I know his history. He was raised by this extremely cruel man. He was kept chained to a barrel in the forest and given no socialization. He didn't play with other dogs. He didn't get to meet anybody but the dog fighter. And then he was kept in a cage in a kennel at the ASPCA temporary shelter for the next eight months. And it wasn't until he was, it was a month before he was released from the case that we discovered he was magical with other dogs. He was, you put him with a shy dog and he'd make himself all small. You put him with a with a grumpy dog and he'd know how to defuse them. You could put him with a dog who wanted to party and he would match them. And I just thought, this dog needs to belong to a dog trainer. What a useful guy. So I still have him and I use him all the time in my training, in my um, training business. And he's the first dog that I put with a new puppy who's in for board and train just to see what they, what kind of play they like. And he, he shouldn't be like this. This is not typical for dog fighting right dogs i must add but when people say it's all how you raise them i like to bring up theodore's case because he was raised in an extremely impoverished environment by a really nasty guy and he's an amazing dog and yet the dog that i raised from birth when people say well there's no bad dogs only bad owners i say well what did i do to chinook to make him want to bite me and strangers and other animals and the answer is you know some sometimes genetics will win so Theodore would have been a terrible fighting dog he would have just tried to play with everybody so I'm glad he got out of that situation and you know Chinook is the poster child for it's it's not all how you raise them it's well they're both the poster children for it's not all how you raise them because I can, I can tell you Chinook never had anything terrible happen to him. Maybe his dinner was late once, but he was not, he was not abused. I, I was beyond my choke chain days. He never had a metal collar. He never had a shot collar. He never had anything but cookies and love. And, you know, maybe dinner was late once, but that should not cause a dog to have that kind of aggression. And so they, it, those, those are two dogs that I bring up all the time whenever people throw these fallacies in my face that I, I would love to see the words that all how they're raised just go the way of the dinosaur and, and the same thing goes for there's no bad dogs only bad owners because I know lots of really awesome owners who, who have ended up with really behaviorally difficult dogs through no fault of their own well absolutely I you kind of just segued us perfectly because I want you to speak on why this it's all in how you raise them mentality is so harmful. Why is it harmful to dogs at large? It's harmful not only to the some of the people that might be experiencing things that you've experienced, but why is it harmful overall? 
harmful to the great people who do everything right and still end up with a difficult God. And my understanding is you've also had similar experiences. And it's harmful to victims of cruelty because, you know, dogs are pretty resilient and they can go through awful things and come out the other end pretty okay. So, you know, yeah. sometimes nature will be stronger than nurture and you'll get a dog from a terrible situation who is really wonderful with everything like Theodore and sometimes you'll end up with a dog who has everything handled to them on a silver spoon and still comes with a plethora of behavior problems. Most dogs are in between the two extremes, of course, but um, I thought it was just really interesting that the same trainer had these same two dogs. And I, I don't know if, you, if you've told your audience about your dogs, but that might be a... Yeah, so I do talk about my dogs often um, on my podcast, <laughs> but I've got, um, between my partner and I, we have seven dogs, and... They come from kind of a, a just a vast array of different types of places. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what I do find interesting is that um, what two of our what I would consider most bombproof, most stable dogs were just straight off the ranch, almost not even a lot of human intervention with the mom and the puppies. They were literally born in barns raised in barns, had never been in a house with a human. And we're talking about dogs that can compete in agility internationally, fly on airplanes, extremely stable. And they're border collies, which are not really known for stability. Wow, <laughs> um, how old were they when you got them? Um, both of them quite young. One of them eight weeks and the other, I think, nine weeks. Um, yep. So... It's fascinating, and then we've definitely got, I would say, two um, of our most behaviorally challenged were silver spoon puppies, who <laughs> were, were raised beautifully. Um, and I think that, you know, and then we've got a couple more who were also silver spoon puppies who are very, very stable. So it's, um, it is all just this combination, right, of genetics and environment and so i do uh, my friend hannah brannigan says before you get the puppy assume that everything is genetic and then after you get the puppy assume that nothing is so try to do your best basically with what you are given but try to set yourself up as well as you can in the first place by kind of looking at these dogs and getting to know them and i think the contrast of chinook and theodore is just startling Especially because Theodore's a dog that whose genetics I would not expect to set him up to be as wonderful. And you guys have to check out Theodore's Facebook page, which is pibbling with yeah. Theodore because he's the cutest and he's so he's so sweet. And he just I mean, yes, like your chickens feel safe <laughs> walking right up to him and they are safe. And it's stunning. Yeah, I've got one that walks on him. And yeah. He's kind of appalled by it, but they seem to know he's no threat. They so. clearly know that he is no threat. Um, and so I think this mentality, I think what you said is really important. It's harmful to the people who are raising these dogs. It's harmful to the trainers who get these dogs in their possession. It's harmful to a person like you who had to make the painful decision of euthanizing Chinook 
um, it's really harmful to, it must be even just painful for you to hear the phrase of, you know, there's no, there's no bad dogs, only bad owners and all of this. And I think all of that comes from a good place. I think it comes from people who really care about dogs, but it's really important to also care about the people who are attached to them and know that we can't change everything. Um, we can't actually rewire the way that the dog is, you know, put together um, in their in their mind or their body. And when we watch, you know, little border collie puppies get put in a pen with ducks, and they herd the ducks into a corner and perfectly with their little stare and their little crouch, it's pretty clear <laughs> that there's some things in here that are hardwired. And assuming that undesirable behaviors aren't hardwired is important. And of course learning matters but I do think that overall this mindset of you can change anything with training um yeah hurts all of us <laughs> it's humbling when you find out you can't oh gosh you it long is enough, you will meet that dog I think so I think we've all I think a lot of people in dog training have a common denominator of having had a really difficult dog at some point <laughs> How we are created. I, I think is how I we're was born. an apprentice dog trainer when I got Chinook, and it turned me from somebody with an interest in dog training to somebody who was like obsessed with I must know everything. I went and got a master's degree, I think, in part trying to find out what I did wrong with Chinook. And there's there's a lot of self blame with these. And it now that I've been thinking about this and reading about this for for twenty more years, it's really. I, I really think a lot of these dogs are born, not made, and I think we blame ourselves. We think, well, that one time his dinner was late, that's why he's biting me. Mm-hmm. And or, or we blame the person who had them before us. Well, he must have been abused be- when he was eight weeks old in that barn before I got him because that's why he's, he's scared of the world rather than thinking, well, maybe he had a spooky mom and a spooky dad, and maybe she had, like, mm-hmm. Chinook's mom was probably mated to her brother. They were two pretty much identical, same-age mm. dogs seized from the same basement. And she was starved for the first half of her pregnancy. She was emaciated and heavily parasitized, and she had no hair from the shoulders on back because she chewed it off trying to get rid mm. of the flea. And that really stressful first month of the pregnancy was followed up by the second month of the pregnancy with an almost feral dog in a shelter. So you can just imagine all of the stress hormones that they were based in, and both the parents were really scared of everything. So, you know, was that because they were kept in the basement, or were they kept in the basement because they were difficult? Who knows? Such a question. Such a question. And we, you know, I think this happens a lot. In my world, which happens to be the dog sport world, um, is I think a lot of times people blame, oh, well, the breeder doesn't do fill-in-the-blank puppy raising program that's why that's why it's a problem or you know I hear frequently actually of mothers rejecting um litters maybe after a c-section or whatever like that and potential owners not being told um about those things before they buy the puppy and things like that because breeders and I'm not making a blanket statement here because I know really really fabulous dog breeders as well but sometimes they're like, oh, that doesn't matter, you know. 
they're just buying the puppy from me. I, as soon as they get it, it's theirs and they're, you know, going to train it and whatever. And, um, I think really caring about the temperament of the parents, as well as the stress that the mom might be under are things that we should probably think a little bit harder about, um, when it yeah, comes I mean, to everything, everything matters. I have a friend who breeds amazingly solid, wonderful dogs, and the only difficult dog she's had was the product of a mother who had who got in a dog fight while she was pregnant, oh, and yes. the, the dog she kept from that litter was the only not solid dog I've ever seen her have. So, yeah, the stuff. I mean, look at the the singleton puppies like just being raised without a litter mate chewing on you all the time can cause all kinds of issues when they get older not not that they're guaranteed but no but it it certainly can and i'm thinking i um i can actually i'm very lucky in that i can count the number of people that i counseled to behavioral euthanasia on one hand um in my career really lucky and I think wow. that again speaks to who my clients are um, more than anything. Just not not because they make better dogs, but because they most of the dogs I work with were bred on purpose and then sought out on purpose. Um, and I think dogs who require behavioral euthanasia are really the exception rather than the rule. I agree so much, absolutely. One of the times was actually a situation like this. It was an excellent breeder who um, there had been kind of an oops and she wasn't aware of the fact that that one of her bitches was pregnant until um, basically until she had puppies. And and that is, um, or until she was just about ready to have them basically. And, so she was in the kennel environment with the other show dogs rather than in her, like, pampered mommy suite oh. where all of her litters tend to be born. And it's really fascinating, the difference in this litter, because it was it's really the only one that she's had some really major, major problems with. So I think stress on mom is, man, so important. And I think that kind of brings me to sheltering because so often these puppies that are born to into shelters or like Chinook's litter that this was a severe neglect case and then she also happened to be pregnant um are interesting and you've been active in animal sheltering that's kind of been your world since the mid 90s and a lot of trainers I know have have felt like there's a there's been a shift in the dogs that we see and the dogs we're working with and our clientele um and it almost feels like, and I want to get your thoughts on this, if there are, if there just kind of feel like there are fewer dogs on earth that are suitable as pets, is that real? Have you witnessed that? Well, there's, there's fewer dogs for sure. I mean, in 20, 30 years ago, they were, the U.S. was euthanizing 20 million oh boy. Um, animals a year, and now it's down to, I think, three. So... That's enormous. Spain neuter has, has had a huge effect. And so there, there's fewer dogs in general. And at the same time, we're getting pressure from the no-kill movement, which, you know, euthanizing most of the animals who comes in, come into a shelter is not not ideal. And the rise in spay neuter has meant there's fewer animals. But the pressure from the other end is you need to adopt all of them out. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I was a kid in the 70s, the, the dog who bit little Jimmy would be taken out behind the barn and shot yes. or otherwise disposed of. Like, there was just not a lot of tolerance. And in the early days of sheltering, if you can only adopt out 30% of your dogs because there's just too many coming in, it's just this avalanche of puppies and dogs, you're going to pick the nicest, nicest, nicest ones. And that's where some of these behavior evaluations came around and Mm -hmm. really skewed it for just the easiest, easiest dogs. And now we're being pressured to adopt everything out. There are dogs with multiple bite histories, dogs who have killed other dogs, who the shelters are being pressured by social media. You can't euthanize or we'll just not donate to you anymore and we'll have candlelight vigils and march around and tell everybody what how delighted you are to murder dogs, mm. which we're not. I, I will say for the shelter peeps out there, nobody goes into sheltering wanting to euthanize dogs. No. We, we go in because we love animals. But these are not all Theodores. <laughs> There's, even, even with his case, they, they were serious dog fighters breeding these dogs. And there were definitely quite a few who were way too dog aggressive to safely adopt out. But the pressure from the no-kill movement is you must adopt everything out. So even if they've killed other dogs, we'll find them a home with no dogs. Even if they want to bite children in the face, we'll find them a home with no children. If they bite the person, we'll find somebody who will manage them around feeding time. And Maybe they like wearing chain mail around the apartment. I don't know. So, so dogs are held for years and years sometimes waiting for this unicorn owner to come along. And what I... At, I do a lot of shelter consulting, and I help these shelters sort of put together criteria for what they, what an adoptable dog looks like in their community. And one of the things I ask is, what home do you see this dog being successful in? And if the answer is a hermit who has no family, no kids, no pets, <laughs> right, no right. UPS driver, no nothing, and lives on a farm with an eight-foot fence and maybe likes wearing chain mail around or doesn't mind getting bitten or doesn't mind becoming a professional dog trainer to manage this dog, that's what we're looking for. I'm, I'm here to tell you, I'm actually that person, minus, you know, the lack of animals. I, I live by myself. I'm on a three-and-a-half-acre farm. I have fencing, yeah. and I don't want your kid biting dog. I don't, I don't want the dog that if somebody leaves the gate slightly open is going to go next door and kill my neighbor's dog. So the, the people who end up adopting these dogs tend to be kind of naive often first-time dog owners who are just like, yeah, I don't have any other dogs, I'll, I'll take that home. And this is how dog trainers are born. Well, it um, is, and, you know, you're saying something really interesting because that's something that I ran into when I used to do some behavior work for rescues and shelters, um, which is that, you know, so often it would be a dog that needs a very, very experienced person. And to be successful so maybe maybe a lot of management but also somebody very very experienced and skilled and like i got news for you everybody i know that's very experienced and skilled has already had this dog once doesn't want to have it again (laughs) exactly Exactly. and the thing the thing we're not thinking about when we send these dogs out and when i started in sheltering i was very much on the no-kill bandwagon and i was going to find that unicorn home there's a lid for every pot there's a person for every dog and i ended up actually causing a lot of harm and because I was younger and my friends were younger and many of them didn't have kids and didn't have dogs I was 
in a position to do some really long-term follow-up with some of these dogs. And one of them I wrote about in my article, The Perils of Placing Marginal Dogs. And luckily she came along pretty early in my sheltering career and she completely changed my mind on sending really iffy dogs out to these unicorn homes. And um, she was, she was, her name is Rosie, and she was a beautiful black dog who was returned for growling at a man. And I thought, well, man probably did something to her. She's fine with me, so <laughs> yeah. therefore she'll be fine with everybody. And I took her to our training center. I was an apprentice trainer, and she was grumpy with other dogs. So I thought, fine, I'll just find her home with other with no other dogs. I didn't find out exactly how grumpy she was. She was just like rah 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 on leash. So I. I found her a home with some friends who had no dogs and no kids, and they spent four years with Rosie going through, and then I promptly moved to San Francisco, so they, they didn't have me as a resource, and they went through every dog trainer in town, she just walked on a muzzle, she she killed three of the neighbor's cats, two of them in full view of the neighbor, she was very dog aggressive, she broke the leash and ran across the road and almost broke her um, her owner's fingers as he tried to separate her from the other dog oh my gosh, yeah. and on her last day of life there was a little cocker spaniel barking under his own garden gate and the pets the dog walker had her out without her muzzle for some reason and she just quick as a flash reached under the gate grabbed that dog by the head pulled him under the gate with such force that the gate came off the hinges shook the dog and almost killed him and I got an email from John, and he, he took her directly to the vet and had her euthanize it. That was kind of the end. But he spent four years with this really difficult dog, walking her on a muzzle, keeping an eye on her in the yard. You know, you can't take her on vacation and let her run on the beach. He lived on the West Coast. That would have been a great thing to do. And he ended up buying a dog from a breeder. And they're actually on their second Vishla. He bought a Vishla. And this dog has sat on my lap when I've been at their, at their place visiting. He was awesome. He helped them raise their child. He went to the dog beaches. He went on vacation. He ran off leash on beaches on vacation. And they're, they're on their second Vishla now. So the thing that really got me with the Rosie case was not only did I outsource my shelter's behavioral euthanasia to my friends, but they are never going to adopt from a shelter again. And they work in the film business, and I am sure hundreds of people heard the Rosie stories over these years. And I am pretty sure nobody in their family is going to adopt from a shelter. Probably nobody. That probably they deterred a few people on movie sets talking about this. Mm -hmm. So how many dogs did I kill yeah. by sending out one iffy one? And that that really sort of set me back on my heels and thought, you know, I'm the shelter person. I need to be tough enough to do my own dirty work. I should not be outsourcing this to first-time dog owners. And every time I, every time I send out a Theodore, like he is a walking advertisement for pit bulls in general and fight bus dogs in particular. Not that they're all like that, but some of them are. But every Rosie I send out is probably killing 20 shelter dogs, you know, inadvertently. Yeah, I... I think this is a really important point that you're making is that when the no-kill movement pushes us to adopt out dogs that really should not be adopted out because there simply isn't a home that they can be successful in because 
you even if it's it's a hermit they live in the world right so even if it's a person who never leaves their house they still live in the world the dog can still get out there are still things there's always well, things Rosie that can happen worked at an only dog home but she was not on an only dog planet and she did manage to hurt an assortment of other animals in yeah. her time in this pet free home well she did and then just like you said um and i obviously and i don't think you disagree think it's fine that um these people have decided now on a breed they like and they go to breeders. I mean, that's actually what I do. Um, one of our seven yeah, have, was a rescue dog. I have dog. no problem with that, but right. I keep thinking I could have given However, them a Theodore and exactly. they could have been hooked on shelter dogs. <laughs> exactly. They were into the shelter thing. They they wanted to do that. They yeah. They won't now because of that experience. And then, of course, I think the more important thing you're talking about, too, is this ripple effect of all the people that also experienced Rosie and yeah. now also will not go to a shelter. And I think that that's something that the kind of no-kill movement side of things, I'm not seeing them talk about that. No, no, that this, I am, I am persona non grata in certain <laughs> wings of the, of the movement. I'm sure, I'm but sure. I think, I think this stuff needs to be said out loud. Like, I do think the behavior of the population of homeless dogs out there has shifted. And I think part of that is we have fewer dogs. Part of that is we're spaying and neutering a lot of the nice ones. Part of it is the people that are kind of randomly breeding dogs. Like we have the wonderful breeders you get your dogs from. Mm-hmm. We have the wonderful breeders my friend John gets his dogs from. But if you think about where the excess dogs are coming from you know back in the 70s when i was a kid a lot of the family dogs came from a population that had already succeeded as family dogs we sort of all opened our doors in the morning those dogs went out and mingled Mm -hmm. the puppies were born in the kitchen they were socialized by the kids they were also set free to run around the village not that that's ideal but the aggressive ones were taken out of the population and and the breeding stock a lot of them had already succeeded as family dogs, whereas what I'm seeing now, I live in North Carolina, and a lot of the excess puppies are born to mama dogs that are chained out, and, you know, puppies come from whatever dad wanders by. You have dogs from from dog fighters who get busted, and the puppies get seized, and they're not all as nice as Theodore. A significant number of the dogs from his case were euthanized for extreme dog aggression. Fighting dogs tend to be awesome with humans, but They've been selectively bred for dog aggression, and and to think we can just train that out of them is like taking your border collies and saying, don't be interested in fast-moving objects. Exactly right. And so what I feel like I'm hearing is that there were some things set in motion a long time ago to try to control the overpopulation problem that we had, and those things have been successful, largely. And now what we have is too many dogs that are actually not like the excess of dogs we have are dogs that are too many of them i'm not saying 100 percent not suitable to live with people and so it's kind of like we we set some changes in motion they've been effective and now another shift is due basically yeah yeah well i i, I... And I do want to say that there are lots of awesome, awesome dogs in shelters. There still, are, yes. But in the areas where we've been super successful with spay-neuter, we're having to 
bring dogs up from the south, from from less populated areas. I am now in one of the more populated areas that ships dogs out here in North Carolina, but I'm not sure. Are, are dogs being shipped into your local shelters, or are they have they run they out? They are. Yes, our, I'm in the Seattle area, um, and there are very few. So we've got. Um, basically with COVID and I just heard you talking about this as well with um, my friend Ryan Cartledge over on the Animal Training Academy podcast but the the bigger shelters have um, been able to put all of their dogs into foster homes so they yeah. are, are not we're, we're in having, the shelter we're yeah. having a dog shortage and we're actually going to run out of transport dogs it seems impossible with the number of dogs in California Texas and North Carolina but if you're doing transport correctly, you should be trying to help out at the source mm-hmm. and improving your source shelters, spay neuter programs. Probably in the next five to ten years, we're going to run out of dogs in the south too. And then what happens? And this is a question that nobody wants to talk about. My, my <laughs> old boss Emily Weiss wrote a blog for the ASPCA called "Where Will the Puppies Come From?" Probably a decade ago. Uh, and it, it's no longer up there. I couldn't find it last time I looked for it. But it kind of made a lot of heads explode. Like, what if we are successful? Where, where will the puppies come from? And I, I find myself, I used to be heavily spay-neuter everything, you know, not more than six months old. We've got to get those, those dogs fixed. Mm-hmm. And now I find myself talking to people who have awesome dogs. I am actually staying with some friends right now who have an amazing standard poodle and he's three years old and I have I have begged them not to remove him from the gene pool just because he is such a solid dog and I if you had told 20 years ago Trish that she would ever <laughs> let the words come out of her mouth like maybe leave him intact and at first it was you know leave him intact until he's full grown just because mm-hmm. I have paid for four D's in the last four years on my on my personal dog. Mm-hmm. But now that I've seen what a wonderful dog he's turned into, I'm like, hmm. Oh, for Is there a way true. to keep jeans in the pool? Yeah, and I've done a 180 on that too. I used to be 100% gung-ho, spay-neuter, um, you know, normal people shouldn't have intact dogs kind of way of thinking. And now I'm kind of going, you know... We have a shortage of, in my opinion, nice dogs. And I'm going to tell you, Trish, it exists in my world too. It's not just in the shelter world. In the purpose-bred performance dog world, it's also hard to find a dog with a, to me, a pet quality type of temperament. So a temperament of a dog that, like I talked about, my dogs that can fly on airplanes and go everywhere. um, That's actually not easy to come by. Um, and less and less easy to come by as people breed intentionally for things like speed and, um, you know, maybe train, you know, what agility people consider trainability is often that they will latch onto a tug toy at eight weeks and not let go. So (laughs) that... What what else might come along with that? Yeah, think about some of the tag-along traits that you might be getting, you guys, (laughs) with these things. I'd rather work a little bit harder to build, drive an interest in toys and food and have a dog that is comfortable in the world. Um... And it's, it's becoming harder and harder to come by. And I think you're right. I think it used to be, you know, 
a normal person, a regular person had a nice golden retriever and the guy down the street also had a nice golden retriever and maybe they had a litter of puppies or maybe a golden with a lab or, you know, whatever. My childhood dogs growing up were like neighborhood accident puppies and they were lovely. Um, And that just kind of isn't happening anymore because the spay neuter movement has been successful. Yeah, I think it's. I think the time is coming that we're going to have to start thinking about these things. And I, I know you had Dr. Heckman on talking mm-hmm. about the Functional Dog Breeding Collaborative, and that is a fascinating Facebook page. Boy, oh boy, if you want to, <laughs> yes, if some really interesting ideas are being talked about, like one of my breeds is the Doberman, and this is a breed that is in a severe genetic bottleneck. To the point that it may not exist 10 years from now and just all kinds of interesting discussions are happening over there yeah because that's the I other crazy going to come out of it yeah well we have that in common church it's my breed my other breed too is dobermans and the reason there isn't yeah. one, the reason there isn't one in this house is exactly what you just talked about um the health is too heartbreaking for me to even entertain and um they it's kind of it's an interesting contrast because I think for so long the dog world has been like starkly divided you've got dog show people and shelter people and they don't live on the same planet and um what's happened over here with dog show types of you know crowds of people I'm gonna get in trouble for however I'm talking about everybody so I'm just gonna quit worrying about it um What's happening over here with kind of the show crowd, the confirmation crowd, is we're seeing severe inbreeding depression in some of these breeds. We're seeing severe yeah. bottlenecking. So, And then over here in the shelter world, we're seeing that the spay-neuter um, push has been successful. We've drastically... Those stats that you cited, that's ridiculous. The drastic drop in numbers of dogs that have to be euthanized is so impressive to me. But now here we are, and I almost feel like there's like a merging of these worlds right now because now it's like, oh, there just aren't enough dogs in general. Like there just aren't, they're kind of, yes, there are still dogs that need homes and nobody's saying that there aren't. Um, And there's a lot of good work being done to make sure they get into the right places so that they can get adopted. But it's really fascinating to me. And what I love about the Functional Dog Collaborative is that sometimes we've got people with a leg in both um, areas talking about the common ground of yeah, we want to make nice to get along. Yeah. Like it used to be that the shelter people hated every dog with its reproductive organs yes. and the people who owned them. And now we find ourselves in a puppy crunch. And what's going to happen when we run out of puppies? Do do we need to start <laughs> referring to responsible breeders? What? And what like is a responsible breeder? Yeah. And, and where do we go from there? And because it's, it is really, it's a fascinating kind of merging of worlds that I see happening, especially over at the Functional Dog Collaborative, where people are saying, okay, let's make some more dogs, but hey, can we make sure that we're making good dogs? Like, let's make sure that we are making dogs that are healthy and of mind and body, if we're going to be yeah. making more dogs. Yeah, and maybe, maybe raise them in homes with people and TVs and toilets that flush. Concept. I know. Why not? (laughs) I mean, I would personally love to see more dog trainers raising dogs. I think who better to 
deal with the mental health of a litter of puppies than I keep thinking about it, but every time I think about it, I think that maybe I'm crazy. Um, this little mixed breed. Yeah, I'm, I'm, puppy. I'm behind you. I will totally yeah. support you if you, if you raise a litter of puppies from one of your lovely bomb-proof dogs from the barn or the silver spoon. Well, our our really really nice dogs are boys. Um, <laughs> we we need to get ourselves some really really nice. I mean, I have one really nice girl, but she's turning twelve soon, so that ship has sailed, and it yeah. sailed a long time ago. Um, but. It's it's not out of the question for me now. I, I used to kind of assume, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And now I'm thinking it's almost my civic duty with some of these really <laughs> nice dogs <laughs> to put yeah, them back so into the population. Nice border too. Like, there's, Gosh. there's so many issues in that breed. If you've got solid ones, like, why not make more solid dogs? And, you know, this, this was heresy. This is absolute heresy. 10, 20 years ago, but Completely. I think we're, we're coming to the point where we have to think about these things. So if you want some really interesting contrasts in reading, like read the Functional Dog Collaborative Facebook page and listen to their podcast, and then hop over to the page that I admin with my friend Sue Alexander called Losing Lulu, where it is a grief support group for people who have euthanized her behavior and Boy, oh boy, there's dogs from all walks of life there. Some of them came from great breeders. Some of them came from the Silver Spoon yeah. background that you're talking about. And But a lot of them are dogs that they, they saved from euthanasia. Those mean shelter people wanted to euthanize this dog. So I took it in because I have no other dogs. And boy, so, some of these folks just, like, they, they have honest-to-God PTSD from what has happened with these dogs. Yeah. And... There's some some very very sad stories, and it has made me even more determined to continue talking to the shelter people about, like especially if you know a dog has a bite history, has poor bite inhibition, has killed other animals. Like the answer is not find them a home with no fill in the blanks, whatever they want to hurt. Yeah. Sometimes the answer is this is not a pet dog. This is not a dog that's going to succeed as a pet. And the. <sighs> really, I'm just going to call it straight up violence towards people on social media who have to make that painful, awful, hideous decision is why I'm really glad that Losing Lulu exists um, for people to go and kind of be safe because... Yeah, gosh, it, I mean, it's, it's a part of the issue with behavioral euthanasia is people who have done it often don't talk about it after a euthanized Chinook. I don't think I could even say his name for the next several years. Like, it's taken me this long to be able to yeah. tell his story. And yeah. so people assume that it doesn't happen or it only happens to bad people. <laughs> and that is absolutely not true. I'm, I'm here to tell you. Which you is also dangerous. It, and, yeah. and then there's the, the shaming. Like, if you tell the shelter, they may put you on a do not adopt list. Mm -hmm. One of the discussions that comes up is, I feel like I'm ready for another dog, and they're going to ask me about all my previous dogs on the application, and what do I say about my Lulu? And that's, that is an issue. There are rescues who will say, well, you euthanize a dog for behavior. It must have been your fault. You must be a terrible owner. You can't have one of my dogs. And that's just a shame because these folks who come and tell their stories of the thousands of dollars they've spent and the 
being hostage and not going on vacation and not having guests over for years on end. It, these are often really awesome adopters who deserve to have a really nice dog from a breeder or from a shelter or from a rescue. And they're being, they're being demonized. And the dog that I euthanized, I, I was the foster parent of the Lulu who losing Lulu is named after. And our rescue group does not adopt out dogs who want to kill other dogs. And when she tried to kill one of my dogs, she was just kind of grumpy when I got her. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, this is truly an only dog home dog. She's not dangerous, but she'd rather not live with other dogs. But when she did fight and I found out she had no bite inhibition and she did $800 worth of damage to my little lab mix in a matter of minutes. And I had a brake stick and a second trainer around and was able to um, get her off pretty quickly. I was I was glad that that didn't happen in a normal home because I think she could have killed somebody else's dog. But when I made the decision to euthanize, there was a group of people, mostly on Theodore's page. My my personal page has a lot of well curated trainer friends who figured if I made that decision, it was probably the right decision. Mm-hmm. But the regular pit bull loving people on Theo's page, boy, I got called some things I have never been called in my life and I'm not going to repeat them on your podcast but this is happening like I've got a hard shell yeah (laughs) "Yeah, well that was the right thing for that dog and thank god she didn't hurt anybody else's animals but when when this is happening to normal people like part of me wants an army of Lulus to just go and support people (laughs) when they're getting trashed on social media and just say no it happened to me too and I'm not a bad person. And I think that's important. And that's why it's, it's really important that that page exists. Um, so Trish, man, we've hit a lot of bases here. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to ask you one more question before I ask you to kind of tell everybody where they can find you. So the last question is, what is one thing that you wish everybody involved with dogs from show dogs to shelter dogs understood? Oh, boy, yeah, you see, sent me this question in advance, and I have been thinking about it ever <laughs> since. <laughs> and there's so many things that I, there's so many things that I wish people understood. But I think the role that I find myself in now is mostly as a translator for animals. I do dog, cat, and horse behavior consulting. And I find myself just being the go-between between the human and the dog and, and trying to ensure that they meet their dog's needs make sure they read their dogs like people who ask the dog to sit and the dog sits and they whack them on the head three times the dog is blinking and trying to move away and like that was not actually reinforcing for your dog so I I would say being able to speak dog a little better and being able to meet their needs are probably the two things that I, I do the most coaching on in my personal life well, that makes two of us. <laughs> um, <laughs> excellent answer. Trish, where can people find you if they would like to know more about what you do? Sure. I am in many places. I am, my personal page is trishmcmillan.com. So if you can spell my name, you can find me. My Facebook is the same, Trish McMillan. There are several Trish McMillans out there. Or McMillan Animal Behavior is my business page. Theodore, of course, is Pibbling with Theodore. My farm is Pibble Hill. 
<laughs> and I can also be found on the Loose Leash Academy. I do seminars with Michael Shikashio on aggression and defensive handling. We have one more coming up in November. I'm not sure when this podcast is dropping, but you can still sign up on that page. And we are going to do four of them next year, one of them on Australian time, which is going to be fun. And that's uh, been a bit of a passion project, trying to make sure that dog trainers and shelter people stay safe when they're handling aggressive dogs. So that's, that's my side of it is the defensive handling part, and Mike's side is the training part. Awesome. I will make sure that I link all of those things. Trish, thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. Thank you again for inviting me. It's been a, it's been a roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. All right, some Patreon questions for you all. This one comes from Susan. Susan writes, Hi, Sarah. I've been working with my two-year-old girl over the last six months on how to chill slash be bored, similar to how you described in the self-regulation episodes. And I've seen lots of progress in various situations. One of the techniques I've been using is tethering her both at home and in the yard, as well as out in the community. And after lots of practice, when using this, she almost immediately settles. I've noticed that she at times continues to struggle to relax when nothing's going on. But as soon as I bring out the leash, she will immediately be calm enough to sleep. While it's not a huge deal to have her leashed, I'd love to see this transfer without needing the tether at home or the yard. Do we just not have enough practice at this? Would you do something to help teach her to chill without the cue of the leash? She has a solid place, which is also practiced regularly, but I'm hoping for this to be a more of a contextual ability to read the room and chill when humans are being boring. Am I asking too much or just too much too fast? Really great question, Susan. Um, I'm going to remind you that your dog is two years old, which is a baby. And the fact that she is relaxed enough to sleep the second you put her on a leash and do the tethering procedure is huge and awesome and means that she is learning exactly what she needs to learn. Now, it is right now only reliable under the cue of the leash. Think about how varied all the other cues are, right? So think about all the different contexts in which you have done this. The constant is the leash. So that is why that makes sense that the leash has become the cue for that behavior. And I'm going to say that this is not a problem. Uh, keep doing it. Keep working the way you're working. She will start to read the room because that's another contextual cue. It's just not as salient to her. So she has not picked it up yet. And she's a baby. So keep at it. You're doing great. I don't think that there's a problem here. Next one comes from Amy who asks, how do you handle dog friends in environments where they can't be friends? My dog and I, eight-month-old Golden Doodle, regularly off-leash hike with a friend and her seven dogs. The youngest one, approximately one-year-old Border Collie, and my dog are best buds. They run and roll around in the dirt and grass together, but when we get into a training environment, Agility Foundations, my dog loses her mind trying to get him to play. She's fine if any of the other six are there. It's just the one-year-old that gets to her. Would worked up be a good route to go? I want her to be able to train around anyone, anything, but he just gets to her. They're spayed and neutered. Good question, Amy, and I think one that people do run into quite a lot. What's happening is your dog's uh, reinforcement history lies really heavy on play with her friend, with her dog friend. 
and does not lie heavily yet on agility. You need to kind of tip those scales for yourself. And so I have a few recommendations on how to do that. The first one, which may or may not be possible, is to be in separate classes. And I know that's not as fun, but you're basically saying, hey, come do this thing with me that you don't know is fun yet, while there's a big fat temptation over there of a thing that she already knows is fun, okay? So it's kind of like, um, you know, it's kind of like I've got Disneyland as an option, or I've got going with you to see a movie that I'm I have not even really heard of and I'm not sure that I like this movie or this kind of movie and if you give me those two choices man I'm going to Disneyland okay but if Disneyland's off the table and you say hey you want to go check out this movie later I'm gonna say all right we can go check out that movie and then if I love that movie and I really have a great experience with you going to the movie because maybe we get coffee after and we talk about the movie, now you're building a reinforcement history for me going to movies with you. And so things are looking, they're looking different. And then over time, I might choose the movie, which is easy and cheap compared to Disneyland, right? Um, and that's, that's what you want agility to start to be. Easy, fun, cheap. And you can't teach her that if that big temptation is over there or you will be less successful teaching her that. Um, so that's the best thing for you to do. If that's not possible, you kind of want to see if you guys can take turns in class where the Border Collie puppy is being boring while your Golden Doodle puppy is working and vice versa. So maybe one puppy is in a crate or on a station working on being really calm and quiet while the other one is doing the more fun stuff. Um, because this is a, this is an issue, right? And it isn't going to get solved just by continuing to battle with your dog, um, on her preferences. And, you know, I, I personally kind of wouldn't cut off access for them with each other, but I also would make sure that you are not allowing them to play or, or interact at all in any agility type of context. So keep working at it, Amy. Let us know how it's going. It can be a tough thing, but it absolutely can be done. And the other thing is that just by breeds alone, the Border Collie is pretty likely to hook on to agility pretty fast and not want to play with your dog in that context anymore. Whereas your Golden Doodle, that's not going to happen as quickly. Golden Doodle is going to have um, either a Golden Retriever or a Poodle would have a much harder time hooking onto the work rather than the play and so it don't be frustrated if your dog takes longer and your dog is legit is younger considerably younger than the border collie too so um it's possible that you need to repeat the foundations class that you're in while the border collie graduates and goes into the next class that might also be the best route and the most appropriate so best of luck to you last one comes from beth I've recently started kayaking with my Border Collie or Aussie type mix, six years old. She is enjoying riding in the kayak except for several breaks to swim when we are out by ourselves. However, when we're out kayaking with friends, she's desperately trying to jump out of the kayak and barking incessantly when she is restrained in the kayak. When she is allowed to jump into the water, she's swimming in circles between the kayaks, so I think this might be a herding instinct. She even has tried to round up other kayakers who are passing by. 
I don't want to fault her for her instincts, but there are times when it's dangerous for her to jump out and swim. Can you use some of the same training steps as you would for FOMO, or do I need to focus on management? Do you have any other suggestions? This is my first herding breed, and I don't know how to help her avoid losing her mind when she has to stay in the kayak. So interesting question and actually a behavior that I've observed in one of our dogs um, when he goes out on the paddleboard. And what I would say is that I actually think your dog is less comfortable with kayaking than you than you know or than you're that you're aware of. And so when she is presented with other options or when she's presented with kind of other cues, which might which would be friends out on the kayak um, themselves she's gonna choose those other options or other cues. So I would work really hard on kayaking with her by yourself and doing a lot of calming type stuff. And I would even take the kayak out of the water and work on a nice calming downstay and things like that and just encourage, and I would use food to do so, and encourage um, all of that nice soothing behavior. And I would also put jumping out of the kayak into the water under stimulus control so I would get that really nicely solidly on cue so that she isn't just jumping out whenever she wants to. Um, I would depending on how you feel about it safety wise tether her to you probably not to the kayak um, but tether her to you um, if you don't think she's gonna like pull you in the water. <laughs> so um, that way she can't jump right out. So I definitely use leashes and food and the, it's a paddleboard for us, but the same thing out of the water on the shore to train all the foundation behaviors before you get out there and put her in those really tough situations. I am skeptical of this being about hurting. I am more um, inclined to say that it is about anxiety being channeled into you know attempts to control the environment which is very much a herding dog thing to do so best of luck on that beth and that's it for this week thanks for listening be sure to rate review and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice if you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.